Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Sherwin Bryce Pease, is the United Nations Bureau Chief for South African Broadcast Corporation, SABC News. We have a wide-ranging discussion about happenings at the United Nations, including debates and discussions at the Security Council about the deteriorating situation in Libya, why the dispute in Western Sahara is at a key inflection point, how the ongoing Ebola outbreak in Congo is being discussed at the UN, and why the Trump administration's Middle East peace plan will likely shape debate and discussion at the UN this summer. This episode is the third installment of my series of chats with in-house UN correspondents about what's buzzing at Turtle Bay. The idea here is to touch base with a UN reporter about every six weeks or so to take the temperature around the UN and learn what issues are driving the agenda there. Let me know what you think of this series. You can send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. We kick off this installment of UN Correspondent Chat discussing the recent appearance before the Security Council of Hassan Salame, the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for Libya. So now here is my conversation with Sherwin Bryce Pease of the South African Broadcast Corporation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, just the tenor, Mark, of uh, his demeanor, if you will, was a man that was exhausted, a man that was gutted, who was very disappointed, who was sad to have to present the report to the council that he was presenting because he was hoping to come and report back on a national dialogue and a peace conference that was, you know, supposed to happen just as uh, General Khalifa Haftar announced uh, the sort of uh, offensive against Tripoli, while we might add that the Secretary General was in the country, basically, to to sort of wish uh, the stakeholders well heading into uh, the, the conference. So uh, my sense of Hassan Salame's demeanor and tone and his tenor was a man that had been very disappointed in the in the in the weeks leading up to that briefing by this these new developments that I think for all intents and purposes, given the trajectory that he was working on, were very unexpected. So Libya, he said, in this briefing is on the you know, is descending into uh, is on the verge of descending into a fully fledged civil war again, which he said could lead to the permanent division of the country. He told the council about you know, seeing the invitees to this national conference suddenly taking up arms. So that threw him into a deep level of sadness at the opportunity that was being forsaken, the opportunity that was being lost. 
He also talked about the security vacuum, and particularly in the south of the country, and the emergence, and this will be very concerning, I think, to all the members of the Security Council, the emergence of black ISIS flags in the south mm. of the country. So as they're being kicked out of places like Syria and other parts of, of that region, uh, you know, they often talk about the security vacuum in, in, the, in the Sahel region. And this is why that, that region, if you look at Mali, for example, has become so insecure. So now we are seeing black flags in Libya, ISIS so, flags, that is. Mm. So, so, you know, you mentioned the Security Council. Can you talk a little bit about the emerging Security Council dynamics here? I mean, I, for one, can't get a handle on who the U.S. is supporting or what the U.S. objectives are in in uh, Libya. I, I did a whole episode on sort of Haftar and the Libyan uh, civil war, so I don't need to, like, rehash all of that. But j just to, to, to be brief, uh, the U.S. sort of used to or perhaps still does support the UN UN backed uh, government there, but also simultaneously gave a wink and a nod to Haftar's offensive against Tripoli. Do you have a, a sense of, of, I guess, what the emerging council dynamics are? I think you hit the nail on the head there, is, is that the, the sense, whether you're talking about the press corps, I think with diplomats here, is that we're all a little bit confused by it all, right? Because there is this UN-backed uh, government. The Secretary General certainly would have relied on traditional allies or certainly the P5 to support him and back his uh, his special uh, representative. It's, that's certainly the rhetoric you hear in, in, in the statements, is that we support the work that he's trying to do, Hassan Salama, and to bring parties together. But then you get these sort of, you know, shooting from the hip statements that President Trump had a call with Haftar and basically supports his fight against terrorism in the country. So it, it does get a bit confusing. There's also some a, a narrative around this where France perhaps wasn't as uh, uh, allied to the British position. Remember, it was the British uh, is the British are the penholders on Libya, and they were trying to push a uh, a resolution that would call for an immediate ceasefire, an immediate uh, a stop to the fighting, and 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 allow humanitarian aid. In, and they didn't seem to have the full backing of France. We asked the French ambassador Francois de Latour whether you know they were sort of teetering as to whether to to support uh, the U UK calls, and you know they were very sort of vague in their responses. The Trump administration really took everybody by surprise by saying that they were were, were you know that they basically were. Uh, pleased with the with the, the role that that uh, Khalifa Haftar was yeah. playing in the country, so there's a great deal of confusion. In addition to that, you have uh, the A3 group, the African, the three African countries that are saying everybody needs to back off a little bit in terms of the international response and let the African Union and the African Union Peace and Security Council lead on this. I mm -hmm. think there's a there's a hangover from 2011 where the Africans feel that you know the one South Africa who was on the that was on the council at the time had given uh, acquiesced to the, to the no fly zone that they then went too far in mm -hmm. terms of uh, uh, protection of civilians yeah. you're Needed. referring to the 2011 security council resolution yes. authorizing that, uh, international intervention in libya south africa was on the security council at the time but uh, if i recall they abstained from the resolution no they did not abstain. oh they did not. Oh, 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 oh they voted it. they backed it okay so that I think it was like Germany was on the Chinese council and abstained, abstained or something. I can't yeah. remember the, the, the yeah. other members. So the Africans feel particularly invested in okay. how this crisis is resolved. And so there's very much a uh, a request, if we can, for, for use of a better word, 
of the international community to let Africa lead on this. And, and uh, there was uh, a, a troika, uh, I think they called it the AU troika on Libya, that is represented by the current AU chairperson, which is uh, the, the president of Egypt, the former uh, AU chairperson, which is Rwanda's president, Kagame, and the incoming AU chair, which is going to be South Africa. So the, the, this troika went to Libya. And really, I think uh, the call from the African Union is that this, that this troika take the lead on on resolving the process moving forward. So, so let's move elsewhere in Northern Africa to Western Sahara, uh, where I guess it was almost a, there, there are similarities in the, that the trajectory of the conflict seemed to be moving in a positive direction. Uh, but now it was hit by a sudden variable. Uh, in this case, the UN's uh, special envoy representative, the Secretary General special representative, uh, Hurst Kohler, uh, former German president, resigned suddenly. Before we sort of get into uh, sort of the current state of play of, of uh, Western Sahara at the UN, could you just very briefly um, sort of give listeners a background on on the conflict? Sure. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would do uh, as good a job as perhaps a historian, but certainly there was a conflict after the Spanish, uh, which was the colonizer in that region in, in Western Sahara, pulled out. The um, certain pro what, what Morocco calls its southern provinces, what uh, the Polisario calls Western Sahara, uh, they annexed those provinces and have invested uh, billions and billions of dollars trying to uh, uh, get to the minerals and, and the fisheries that, that surround uh, that, that area. And so in 1991, the Security Council passed a resolution to create uh, a, uh, a UN peacekeeping mission there. And the, the UN peacekeeping mission is called something to do with the referendum in Western Sahara. The point of that mission was to allow an independence referendum that would determine the future of that territory. Of course, that was 1991. We are decades later and the conflict has not been resolved. So we're at a point now where there's a great deal of frustration, I think particularly from, I think, Penholder, the United States, that this process has not moved as quickly as they might have hoped. So they have been pushing for um, the uh, extension of the mandate for not one year, but for six months, so as to create added impetus to get the parties together. And what yeah. Horst Kohler managed to do was to bring these parties together for the first time in Geneva uh, in December last year for face-to-face -face talks in addition to the neighbors, Mauritania and Algeria. And this was really seen as a breakthrough moment for this longstanding uh, 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 crisis in terms of really moving the process forward. But as, as, as you pointed out, he has yeah. now resigned due to health reasons. So an interesting wrinkle uh, to this story comes in the figure, I think, of John Bolton. Um, so back in 1991, uh, he was an aide to James Baker and was the guy who really sort of helped set the conditions for that peacekeeping operation to, to, uh, launch. And, you know, one sort of, I've been sort of studying John Bolton for years and, you know, he has a couple of sort of fixations that are non-conventional, you might say. One of them, you could say, is the International Criminal Court. The other is certainly Western Sahara. I, I saw a quote uh, that he gave, I think, to The New Yorker saying, there are two Americans who think about Western Sahara. Jim Baker is one of them. I'm the other. Um, and, oh, wow. yeah, and, and if you read his memoir, he just has like a whole chapter of it. It's just like, you know, the amount of attention he gives to it is not commensurate with perhaps the role it plays in international politics, but nonetheless, it's a fixation of his. Uh, and so I'm sort of curious to see how sort of the introduction of, of Bolton as national security advisor about a year and a half ago has, um, 
has affected, impacted sort of the dynamics of the Security Council on, on this issue? Well, I do have one anecdote that can sort of speak to how I think John Bolton's role as national security advisor is shaping the debate here. We have seen a shift in the U.S. position to say that Morocco's proposal of giving greater autonomy to the Frente Polisari over that territory, other uh, excluding, of course, the option of independence, and, and with that, uh, very possibly uh, the referendum that the, the, the Polisario still wants, the, the self-determination referendum. The United States is now saying that they believe that the Moroccan proposal has some credibility to it. Now, of course, not everybody around uh, the table agrees that um, uh, any uh, member state or any country in the Security Council should be putting its finger on the scale in such away, just as now the now departed Horst Kohler was trying to get parties around the table to negotiate an outcome. And so South Africa, for example, was very critical during a, 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 a recent meeting of the Security Council that certain member states were sort of pronouncing on what they thought was a good idea and what not, and that they felt was undermining the negotiations that had needed to happen directly uh, between the two parties. So, but but as you mentioned, um, one sort of thing that's that's accompanied Bolton's ascendance is that as opposed to renewing the mandate of the peacekeeping mission for a year, you said it's been only renewed for six months, so as to add some like urgency to the negotiations. Theoretically, with the threat uh, that the peacekeeping mission may be pulled, do you think that's an actual possibility or an outcome? Well, I can, I can quote the Moroccan ambassador, uh, Omar Hilal, who talked about, uh, called on, uh, the, called his offer, the offer of the Moroccans, mm. pragmatic and realistic. And he warned the Polisario in, in a statement to, to, to journalists uh, during the last meeting of the council that offering their people the myth of independence was not going to uh, alleviate their pain. So he calls it a myth of independence. I don't think the Moroccans are on board. Uh, in terms of a self-determination referendum, they believe that the only offer on the table in these negotiations is the greater great autonomy of those provinces, what they call their southern provinces, under the Polisario Front. But sovereignty, uh, uh, complete sovereignty or, or independence is, is not one of those options. So it does raise questions about what they had hoped to achieve in the negotiations if, if, they, had, if they started them with, with such very firm positions or, or conditions, if you will. So... Uh, as we're speaking, uh, the number of people killed by this uh, Ebola outbreak in DRC has exceeded, I think, 1,200. It's the second worst Ebola outbreak of all time, the worst to hit the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is, is no stranger to Ebola outbreaks. Um, I'm curious to learn from you how this outbreak is playing in the halls of the UN in New York. I mean, do you see any similarities to how diplomats are talking about this outbreak to uh, the West Africa outbreak of, of several years ago, which was, I suppose, far more international. Um, this current outbreak has not crossed any borders that we know of just yet. But but what are what's sort of like the buzz on this uh, Ebola outbreak that seems to be unrelenting right now? Well, I'll, t I'll tell you, the buzz is that there is no buzz. Um, uh. no, certainly, if you were to compare to the response we saw uh, uh, in 2014 to, to through 2016, and the you know 11,000 people, 11,000 people yeah. died. 
uh, in that West uh, Africa outbreak. So why, if you compare sort of the death toll right now, you go, well, clearly this is not on the same level. But I also think there was a miscalculation uh, on the international community's part because uh, the DRC was historically very good at dealing with Ebola outbreaks. So that's not to say that there weren't warnings and you know, pointing to the fact that this outbreak is happening in the Ituri region and the North Kivu region. So for people who don't know, that's East DRC, that's in the, uh, the, the borders of Burundi, Uganda, uh, Rwanda, that kind of region, which is known for its hostility, it's known for its insecurity, and its plethora of armed groups, including the uh, Allied Democratic Forces, the ADF, which is the sort of group that, that fled Uganda back in the day. And so this, was, this was, is, a, is a known to be a very insecure area. And so there have been attacks uh, by these armed groups against peacekeepers trying to secure the health facilities that have been set up to deal with the Ebola outbreak. But in addition to that, uh, Mark, and, and, and similarly to what we saw in West Africa, there's a lack of education and understanding about what Ebola is and what the de- types of death sentences that it, it hands out, whether the, the body you are dealing with is deceased or not. And so in terms of burial rights and you know people's uh, local traditions, You've had that. You've had the United Nations and the World Health Organization and various other aid organizations go in there and try to teach people that perhaps they shouldn't wash the bodies, for example, before they bury it. Shouldn't touch the body. That's something that 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 does not resonate. And so you've seen a lack of understanding and pushback from 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 local communities that have raided some of the the health centers, that have killed some of the health professionals working there. And we, what we're now seeing uh, from the UN and the WHO is that they need to strengthen strengthen the leadership team there. They've appointed a guy called David Gressley, who's an American. He's the former SRSG, the special representative to the Secretary General, the former deputy in the DRC. So he has an understanding of the region. Uh, but it, it remains to be seen how quickly now with this new sort of posture uh, the UN can really uh, uh, arrest what, what really is, has surprised everybody given the longevity, 10 months now of this outbreak. But as I say, very, very complicated area, very, very uh, rural part of, of the DRC, thick forests. Uh, you know, They suspended the elections in that area because of the, the Ebola outbreak and the insecurity that that region posed. So it's a very, very complex area in which to, to uh, secure and, and deal with Ebola uh, comprehensively. It, it's interesting, though, to hear from you that there's no real talk of any sort of action at like the Security Council level. Um, or, or sort of maybe sub security council level of, of sort of addressing this issue, at least compared to, you know, in 2014 when, you know, there was a security council resolution created like a UN body. I think it was called like UNMI, the UN mission for Ebola or something like that for West Africa. But there's no, even, even as this problem continues to metastasize, uh, there just isn't that sort of level of focus, at least yet. I think, and, and, and I think you make a broader point at, 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 that speaks to the fact that the UN Security Council is dealing with a lot of big crises at the same time. You know, there was an expectation, if we just dip back to Libya for a minute, there was an expectation from the Secretary General over a year ago, Mark, where he t- told a group of ga- journalists that, that he met over lunch. We asked him, what do you, SG, believe is going to be the one crisis that you are going to be able to a deal with, uh, uh, certainly in, in, in the short to medium term, what's the one thing you're going to be able to say, this is what we did and this is how we fixed it? And he said, Libya. 
He said Libya gives him hope. He really feels that Libya is 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 going to give the the UN a win in that sense, and and that of course is also uh, not proven to be true. So I think they're trying. You know, the, the the tentacles of the Security Council is literally everywhere. Whether you're talking about South Sudan, the DRC, uh, Mali, Central African Republic. I mean, there's a lot going on just in that Central African region anyway. And so when you say that, well, perhaps they're not giving the the focus to 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 Ebola that it needs. Just too many things going on, and they are very distracted. So, so speaking about a a huge, I don't know if you want to call it a distraction, but a a big <laughs> event looming in the near future, potentially at least, uh, is the Middle East peace plan. You and you and I were chatting a little before we recorded, and you suggested that sort of the rollout of this Middle East peace plan probably in June will really take up a, a lot of oxygen uh, around Turtle Bay. So, can you just sort of you know, we don't know exactly what's in the plan. Uh, we've heard some bits and pieces of it, but how do you think the rollout of this plan, this plan might affect diplomacy uh, around the UN in, in the coming months? I mean, I don't think it's going to help. <laughs> but that, you know, this is, they, they talked now for a very long time. Everybody's been asking for most of this year because initially the, the idea was that it was going to come out at the beginning of 2019. It's been delayed. Uh, so there's a great deal of expectation. I mean, you even ask close allies of the United States on the Security Council, what have you heard? And they say, we haven't seen anything and we know nothing. We know what you know. So that's a clear sign of how tightly held this this peace plan has been uh, to the chests of, of Jared Kushner and 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 the 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 special the Israeli envoy uh, to to that region. So. Uh, what are the expectations? They seem to want to kick this off with an economic conference in Bahrain, which the Palestinians have said they are not going to. The Palestinian prime minister over the weekend tweeted that they'd managed to convince, convince China and Russia not to attend as well. Uh, there, there just isn't enough goodwill between the Palestinians and the United States right at this moment. And we can point to a, a number of things, whether it's the unilateral decision as it, as it uh, pertains to the, the status of Jerusalem, the United States recently calling for UNRWA, the uh, UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinians, to, uh, essentially that has been helping Palestinian refugees over the decades to be shut down, uh, closing the uh, quasi-embassy, the PLO's offices in DC, the warm embrace uh, of uh, Donald Trump to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who, who, you know, despite his violations of various Security Council resolutions as it relates to settlements, there's just not enough trust between the Palestinians and the United States right now. They do not see Washington as an honest broker. And, you know, I think the facts speak for themselves. Yeah, you know, I, I can, you know, I don't know what's in the plan, obviously, but I could guess that what is in the plan will be something that is overwhelmingly what the government of Israel uh, supports. Uh, be just seeing how the, the alliances between the Trump administration and, and the Netanyahu administration have, you know, become so ensconced and, and, and close over the last, uh, you know, several years. And I can only imagine that that will add to further divisions, you know, at, at the UN. You'll also remember, Mark, the, the statement uh, a, few, a year or two ago where, where Trump basically wavered between two-state solution, one-state solution, and eventually he retracted and said, you know, he's for what, it, it, what both parties basically decide. I mean, the, the fundamental principle of the international community, the United Nations, the Security Council in particular, has been the affirmation of, of, a, of a trajectory towards a two-state solution. So now you're hearing 
you know, one state solution possibly? Does that mean diff- a different set of rights for Palestinians in what the Israelis call a Jewish state? How's that going to work? What is the United States? You, you, you talk about them favoring Israel possibly in a new plan. How then do you acquiesce the, the other side? Is it going to be a huge economic Marshall Plan type uh, uh, pronouncement in terms of giving the Palestinians financial support that they just cannot refuse? Uh, but if you if you look at the history of these negotiations, I think that the, the, the economic angle has been tried with Palestinians before. But what the Palestinians are clear on is they want their independence, they want their own government in place, and they want to, they want to be able to uh, do things their way. And I don't, I'm not hearing enough about a two-state solution, certainly not from the Israelis, mm-hmm. because remember, the uh, Netanyahu used that as a plank. Uh, uh, just before the, 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 the most recent Israeli elections, he talked about a one-state solution. So I don't know. Where yeah. do we go from there, you know? Yeah, well, I, I think you and I, if we had just 20 more minutes, could probably solve this. You're far too optimistic. <laughs> all right. So, so speaking of, of uh, global diplomats, um, so two years into his term now is Antonio Guterres, almost two years. Um What's your assessment? I mean, you, you, you've been you've been at the UN for a long time. What's what's your assessment now of how he has conducted himself in his role? There's no question that Antonio Guterres is clearly a seasoned uh, international bureaucrat, diplomat. Call him what you will. He understands the issues. You know, a council uh, uh, ambassador after a, just as the, the Libya crisis was unfolding and he'd, he'd returned from Libya, briefed him. You know, uh, this ambassador said to us that he walked in there without any notes and he sat down and he explained everything in granular detail for about three hours without needing uh, pen and paper. He just really understands the issue. My, the concern, certainly I think from colleagues in the International Press Corps here, is that he's not able to translate that granular knowledge into great and, and sound bites that can really show leadership at the United Nations. Where, whenever there's a crisis, whether it's on climate change or, or certain actions by a member state, as it regards to what, what is really a fundamental a cornerstone of Secretary General's agenda has been the climate change issue. They still are not able. When the United States, for example, withdrew from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, there's a there's a real lack of, I don't know, ability, enthusiasm, the ability to to criticize uh, bad actors in the world today. And I think that has to do with the threats of you know funding for you know the U.S. being the the largest funder, the the, the strength of of the the oil billions in in the Middle East uh, as it pertains to Saudi Arabia. Even after the Jamal Khashoggi uh, murder in the consulate in in Turkey, there was just a lack of. I don't know, will from UN officials to stand in front of a microphone and speak uh, truth to power. So, you know, there's there's definitely a disconnect between what happens, I think, behind the scenes and perhaps the frank conversation he's, he's able to have uh, or the quiet diplomacy he's engaged in rather than what we see from uh, Antonio Guterres, certainly when there's a microphone in his face. Hmm. That, that, that's interesting to see to, to to see that disconnect though, and compare it to his predecessor, who um, you know would, did not have like the kind of diplomatic perhaps finesse that Antonio Guterres has. Well, I think he also Ban Ki Moon, to his credit, had a. Uh, I mean, this was not his first language. He learned yeah. English on the job. Uh, you know, if you talk to colleagues that were here when he was appointed, he didn't speak. He wasn't very yeah. confident uh, in 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 one of the official languages of of the UN. And so he did, he got better over time. But he was, but he, he wasn't a combative individual to begin with. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
Guterres shows you that he, he's very powerful in his understanding of the issues, and he's a very he's a very strong orator. I mean, he can speak his mind if he wants to. I know that for a fact. Uh, it's just uh, there seems to be a reluctance or an ability to mm. criticize even when you know that you're right. And that's got to do, I think, with people trying to save jobs and not wanting to lose funding. Because, you know, the people, uh, this is people's livelihoods. And that's something we don't discuss enough is the people that work at the UN could lose their jobs if funding dries up. So, you know, it's it's a, a balancing act, if you will. Mm. Um, finally, if, if you have a couple more minutes, I'd love to chat with you about South Africa. Mm. Um, uh, you know, you are, uh, of course, a journalist from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. South Africa is on the Security Council as a rotating member. I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to learn from you, sort of uh, your perspective as a South African covering uh, the UN. Um, like, what what sort of is, is most relevant to you and the stories that you're looking to bring to your audience in South Africa? I know a lot of what you do is the same kind of stuff that any other sort of wire service would do, but it is, is but a certain portion has to be sort of just kind of unique and focused on South Africa. So can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I, you know, I, the reason we opened up an office uh, at the United Nations is because we were so dependent on the Western media and the Western wires for you all. So uh, a lot of stories would focus on you know, quotes from you know, the P3 or P5, but very much with a sort of Western slant. And so you know, we took a decision years ago that we needed a bureau so that we could better reflect the African perspectives on 75% of what it is the Security Council is discussing, which is Africa. So uh, I think the big story, I think, for for members of the developing world, uh, whether you're talking from China down, is there, there's a recognition, and I think more so than you you find in the Western world, that the Security Council is in, and, and the UN more broadly is in desperate need of reform. Now, this is probably something you've heard many, many times before. But if you look at the veto and how destructive the veto has been marked, whether you look at Syria, whether you look at the Palestinian issue, whether you look at the threat of the veto in terms of Western Sahara, the veto has prevented the international community from dealing and solving some of the most protracted conflicts in the world. And I think that has been very frustrating to African countries, particularly countries like South Africa, who you know feel that they want to punch above their weight. I mean, you know, South Africa is the most developed economy in Africa. It's uh, it's had nice Nelson Mandela as an uh, as an icon. Look what the world did to help South Africa move through apartheid. So they now feel they want to give back. But unfortunately, no matter how much enthusiasm, how much positive energy you bring to any debate in the Security Council, if you do not change the power dynamics in that council, we are going to go around in circles forever. And, and, and so, so a lot of your reporting is focusing on, on that, on that issue, on, on sort of the, the, I mean, the we, relevance. Of, yeah. We, we, we report the news, but I yeah. think you, you cannot avoid the fact that when you discuss Syria or when you discuss the Palestinian mm -hmm. issue, that you do not ad address the fact that this council is not reformed and that often the national interests of P5 members determine what gets done and what not. And that is a structure that will fundamentally have to change if the world recognizes that the, you know, that we need to move forward in in in, in, the, in terms of the various crises around the world. The, the veto is a very, very destructive uh, force, and I don't think it gets enough attention in the Western media. Um, well, Sherwin, thank you so much for your time. Do you feel like we, we, covered, we covered a lot of ground here? Anything else you want to uh, nope. plug as, as, if, before we if, sign off? <laughs> if you're happy, I'm happy. I'm happy. Thank you. I, right. Thank you so much for, for your reporting and for your work. I, I, I love following you, following your work. So thank, thank you. you. I look forward to meeting you one day. Yes, it'll happen. All right. Cheers, mate. Bye. Take care. Ciao. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Sherwin. That was really interesting. I, I appreciated uh, that little bit at the end uh, about South African perspectives on the Security Council and the need for UN Security Council reform. At some point, we should devote like a whole podcast to Security Council reform. We could totally nerd out. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.